Father, we do thank you for your holy and inspired and inerrant and infallible word. May you speak to us through your word today. May you send your Holy Spirit to be our teacher. This we pray in Christ's name. Amen. As many of you know, I spent several years in Austin, Texas. Now, besides having really, really good barbecue, uh, Austin's a really interesting place, a really interesting place to live. It's really kind of a hippie town in the middle of an otherwise very conservative state. Uh, Austin's different. Uh, Austin's unique. It stands out from the rest of Texas, and the people who live there like it that way. They're proud to be different. In fact, it's common to see uh, T-shirts and bumper stickers with what has become the city slogan, Keep Austin Weird. Everywhere you go in Austin, you, you see that motto, that slogan, Keep Austin Weird. Uh, today and over the next few weeks, I want to preach a series of sermons on why we should keep Christianity weird. All right, if some of you want to make bumper stickers or t-shirts, that's fine with me. Keep Christianity weird. Uh, Flannery O'Connor, if you want to come at this from another angle, Flannery O'Connor, the great southern Christian writer, once said, paraphrasing Jesus, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you odd. You shall know the truth and the truth will make you odd. There's another t-shirt slogan for you. See, there's really nothing more weird than a Christian right now. Uh, there's nothing more odd than someone who believes what the Bible teaches and who actually seeks to live by it. Uh, as you well know, on June 26th, the Supreme Court announced its ruling that same-sex couples could marry in all 50 states. Uh, as Christians who believe what the Scripture teaches on marriage, uh, I believe we must dissent from this decision. We must dissent from the reasoning that led to this decision. Some have objected to this decision because they see it as a case of judicial overreach. Uh, they're concerned about the constitutionality of the decision, and they want to say that something as momentous as redefining the institution of marriage should come through a democratic process and not through judicial fiat. I do think the decision is unconstitutional. I do think it's a case of judicial overreach. But my strongest grounds for opposing the ruling come not from the fact that I am an American, but from the fact that I am a Christian. Yes, I am concerned with whether or not the ruling is constitutional. I am much more concerned with whether or not it is biblical. This decision is really the next step in the unfolding of the sexual revolution. Really, in a way, you can see it as the culmination of a view of sexuality that our culture adopted generations ago. Those on the other side of this issue would accuse people like me of wanting to turn back the clock on marriage to the 1950s. Actually, I'm here to tell you today it's much worse than that. I want to turn the clock back on marriage, not just to the 1950s, but to the dawn of creation. Look at this passage here in Mark chapter 10. Look at what Jesus says here. The Pharisees have challenged Jesus' understanding of marriage and marriage law. 
And when Jesus corrects them, where does he go? Where does he take them? He takes them all the way back to Genesis, to the creation account. Now I have to tell you, I am, uh, quite frankly, sick and tired of, of hearing people say, homosexuality must not be that big of a deal, must not be that big of a sin, even if it is, is a sin at all, because Jesus never said anything about it. Okay? I don't know why it matters if, if Jesus didn't say anything about it. If God's word addressed it, then Jesus has addressed it because Jesus is speaking in all of Scripture. But just looking at this passage here in Mark 10, the answer Jesus gives the Pharisees addresses the issues of marriage and sex comprehensively, globally, you could say. So it certainly addresses homosexuality. Jesus here treats the creation account as the norm. He treats the creation account as giving the law for marriage. It is a paradigm for what marriage is to be in all times and places. In fact, really what I think you have in verses 6 through 8, Jesus is giving us the ABCs of the Bible's teaching on marriage. The Supreme Court has given its opinion of what marriage is. But I can assure you, God's opinion remains unchanged. And I suppose I should add here, God's opinion trumps the court's opinion because God created marriage. Marriage is not a creature of the state. And so the state is not free to re-engineer or rework it or redefine it any way it chooses. Marriage is an ordinance of God, and God has given marriage an objective structure independent of the state. The state must recognize it, but it's not the state's to change. Marriage doesn't belong to the state in that way. Let's unpack these verses and see what Jesus teaches here. Verse 6, he's interacting here and quoting from the book of Genesis. Verse 6, from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. What could be more obvious than that? God made man male and female. Ma maleness and femaleness did not evolve. God created man male and female in the beginning. Christians are what you could call gender essentialists. We believe a person is either male or female... And your maleness or your femaleness goes all the way down to the very core of who you are. And so we could say men have masculine bodies and brains and souls. Women have feminine bodies and brains and souls. And marriage by definition is the union of a man and a woman into a complementary whole. And of course, sex belongs only within this male-female union of marriage because God created sex for a man and woman to share within the covenant of marriage as a way of communicating to each other in the deepest possible way, I belong to you exclusively and to no one else. The man and the woman are like a key and a lock and together they open the door of marriage. God designed man and woman to fit together. Even the design of our bodies reveals that men and women were made for each other. Marriage is a comprehensive one flesh union. 
Men and women each have their own glories. It's glorious in one way to be a man. It's glorious in another way to be a woman. Men and women have unique glories. These glories are not the same. We could say they are equal, but they are not interchangeable. And indeed, when a man and a woman come together in the covenant of marriage, each supplies something the other is lacking. It's very interesting, if you look at the creation account in Genesis chapter 1, God is continuously dividing and then reuniting. And so you have all of these complementary pairs in the creation. Complementary pairs that are meant to harmonize and work together to form a whole. And so you have nighttime and daytime. You have heaven and earth. You have sea and land. And of course, the culmination of all of this is man and woman. God divides the man and then makes him whole again in a new way, a more glorious way, by uniting him to a woman. And this is the model for all humanity. And that is why the Supreme Court made a grave mistake in normalizing what is abnormal. In effect, the court rejected God's authority as creator. The court effectively rejected God's design for human flourishing. Given Genesis 1, we can see God has a wonderful design for human sexuality. And given Genesis 1, we see that same-sex relations can never fit within that wonderful design. In fact, as Romans 1 indicates, homosexual practice is a way of suppressing what we know to be true. It's a way of suppressing what we know to be true about our natural biological and, and psychological design. It's a way of suppressing the truth that God has plainly revealed about himself in the creation. The male-female pair that God prescribes is unique. Again, you shouldn't have to point this kind of thing out, but I think we do today. The male-female pair that God prescribes is unique. Only this union can bring new life into the world. No other relationship is like it. No other relationship has its potency. The male-female marriage thus connects the generations together in a unique way. It is ordinarily God's will for a child to be raised by a mother and a father. And that is because, just as it takes a mother and a father, a man and a woman, to create a child, God intends for them to raise that child together. And again, this is because moms and dads are not interchangeable. Both are essential to the child's flourishing. Each is essential to the child's flourishing in his or her own way. And thus, adhering to the biblical definition of marriage and the biblical design for marriage actually serves the common good. Even for non-Christians, this design serves their good, adhering to this design. This design commits husbands and wives to each other, thus creating a stable environment in the home. It commits each of them to their children for training and discipline and provision and nurture. And indeed, this is another reason why the court's ruling is such a travesty. The court, in effect, declared that mothers and fathers do not offer anything unique to children, and so two mommies or two daddies can do just as well as a mother and father working together. In fact, I would say what our court has done once again is sacrifice the well-being of children for the sake of adult sexual pleasure. It's really the same logic that drove the 
Roe versus Wade decision in 1973. Instead of parents making sacrifices for the good of their children, children are sacrificed for the sake of adult happiness. Roe versus Wade redefined life to the detriment of children. The recent ruling on marriage redefines marriage again to the detriment of children. See, to get marriage right, we have to follow Jesus as he takes us back to the very beginning, as he takes us back to the creation account. God made man, male, and female. And any civilization that ignores that, any civilization that tries to re-engineer gender and sex and sexuality and marriage, is whether in the short term or long term, committing cultural suicide. Jesus continues defining marriage in verses 7 and 8. He says... For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus says, for this reason. Let those three words sink in for just a minute. For this reason. Jesus is explaining why we have marriage. He's explaining why God made men and women. And he's showing that the sexual differences between men and women are necessary and essential for marriage. For this reason. In other words, God has a grand design, a plan, a purpose. God made man, male and female, so that the man and the woman could come together in this one flesh bond, the covenant of marriage, God made man, male and female, for the sake of marriage. Why do we have men and women in the world? Why do humans come in two genders, two sexes? Because God intended marriage. That was God's plan. God could have designed the human race any way he wanted. He could have designed the human race to work some other way. He could have chosen to make marriage work some other way or not created marriage at all. He could have designed it so that human, humans would reproduce in some other way. But Jesus says here, God made the human race the way he did for a reason. It is purposeful. It is not arbitrary. It's designed. It's rational. Male-female complementarity in marriage is built right into the physical, moral, and spiritual structure of the universe. It's woven right into the fabric of the creation. Either Jesus is right in what he says here about marriage, or the Supreme Court is right, but it can't be both. You have to choose. You have to choose. They can't both be right. According to Jesus, male and female are built right into the definition of marriage. In other words, Jesus is saying here, you have no marriage without a male-female union. Marriage was created for this reason, to bring the man and the woman together. I don't know how it could be any more plain. And why did God give the human race this design? Why did he create marriage in this way? This male-female coupling was designed not only for our joy and companionship, though that's certainly part of it, and not only for the sake of procreation, though that's a key part of it as well. This relationship between the man and the woman finds its highest meaning in what it symbolizes. 
What it ultimately points us to. It points us to the union of heaven and earth. That was God's plan from the beginning, to make heaven and earth one. It points us to the union of Christ with His people. That was God's plan all along. To unite Himself through His Son to humanity, to His people. This is the reason He made them male and female and joined them together in marriage. And again, this is why seeking to re-engineer marriage, tampering with it, treating it as a malleable social construct that we can remake any way we want. This is why treating maleness and femaleness as if they were only skin deep and not really the core of our identity. Treating gender as something plastic and therefore non-essential to one's identity. It's why these things are always, always, always disastrous. In effect, to do these things is to declare war on God. It's to declare war on God's creation. It's to declare war on yourself. You're at war with the way God made the world. Marriage, in the very nature of the case, can never be a genderless institution. You know, when you ignore God's physical laws, like, say, the law of gravity, you get hurt. If you think, oh, I'll just jump off of this skyscraper and I'll flap my arms really hard and see what happens, you're going to go splat on the ground. I mean, you can ignore God's physical laws, but to your own peril. Well, in the same way, when you ignore God's moral laws, like male-female marriage or sex only within marriage, you end up getting hurt as well. The world simply doesn't work that way. The world is simply not ours to remake any way we wish. And our trendy political ideologies are really just fantasies that sooner or later bump up into the hard edges of reality. The creation has a structure. There's an objective order to the way things are that we must respect. And this is why the promises of the sexual revolution can never be fulfilled. What has been the promise of the sexual revolution? The sexual revolution has said, hey, you know what? There are no rules for sex. There's no design for sex. Uh, sexual acts don't have some kind of built-in fixed meaning. And so you can do what you want, whatever makes you happy, and everyone's going to be just fine. That was the promise of the sexual revolution. Get rid of the rules and we'll all start having a whole lot more fun. Now let me ask you a question. Is there any area of life where there are really no rules? Any area of life where you can really get away with not having any rules whatsoever? Uh, take something as simple and common as driving. Driving a car. Imagine with me for just a moment what driving would be like with no rules. No speed limits, no lanes, no stoplights, no turn signals. In fact, no roads, because roads are very confining. What if I don't want to drive here? What if I want to drive over there in the grass? Okay, if we had no rules, either people would be scared to death to drive, or if they did drive, the number of fatal accidents would skyrocket. You have to have rules. You have to have rules of the road. In fact, we could say those kinds of rules, the right kind of rules, don't inhibit freedom. They create freedom. The same is true sexually. If you want sexual freedom, you have to have sexual rules. A choose-your-own-adventure approach to sexuality 
Sounds fun, it sounds thrilling, it sounds exciting. But in the end, it leads to wreckage and ruin. Given the sexual revolution, the only ethical question you're allowed to ask about sex today is, is it consensual? Will anyone get hurt? But you see, asking those kinds of questions, those are all on the horizontal plane. They're humanistic questions. They're horizontal questions. Nobody thinks to ask vertical questions like, does God consent? Will God be hurt or offended by this? We are all sexual atheists. This is what the sexual revolution has done to us. We're sexual atheists. But leaving God out of sexual questions, leaving God out of your sex life is disastrous. Separation of God and sex is a recipe for misery. And that's why the church down through the ages and indeed virtually every civilization down through history have been united in defining marriage as the union of a man and a woman. What does the Bible teach about this? It's very plain. Every single place in the Old Testament scriptures and in the New Testament scriptures where the question of same-sex practice is addressed, it is unambiguously condemned. In fact, often condemned in the strongest possible language that the biblical writers had at their disposal. Now, there are objections to this. There are objections that come from the world. There are even objections that come from inside the church sometimes. And I know this is a painful topic in many ways because so many of us have had homosexual friends or neighbors or family members. Consider with me for just a minute some of the objections that arise. Some will say, well, you Christians are pledging allegiance to an ancient text that is riddled with problems and after all those same Old Testament books that prohibit homosexual practice also prohibit eating bacon. And so aren't you Christians just picking and choosing? Picking and choosing which parts of the Bible to keep, which parts of the Bible suit you. And if laws about food could change, why couldn't laws about sex change as well? There's a great truth in this objection. It is true we do not keep the Old Testament dietary code any longer. But if you read the scriptures as a whole, and if you want to talk about this more, come and, come and grab me and we'll do it. If you look at the scriptures as a whole, it is clear those laws served a temporary symbolic function for the nation of Israel. Even back in the old creation, Gentile believers were never under those laws. See, unlike sex, so unlike, unlike sex laws, food laws do not trace back to the creation. They were added later on and served a temporary purpose for the nation of Israel. But the reason we know we're not under those laws any longer is because of Jesus. Because if you look at Mark chapter 7, Jesus cleansed all foods. We don't have anything like that with homosexuality. He never cleansed same-sex practice. And that's why you have a lot of material in the New Testament dealing with how we're not under the food laws anymore, but you also have a lot of places in the New Testament, a lot of New Testament texts that repeat and reinforce the Old Testament prohibitions on same-sex practice. In other words, showing us this is something that hasn't changed. Oh, but someone will say, those New Testament prohibitions only apply to exploitative sexual acts with perhaps a slave or a child, not to mutual, consensual, same-sex relationships, not to loving 
same-sex relationships. Uh, actually, this is the argument you often hear in favor of homosexuality from inside the church. Uh, and, and I think it's created a great deal of confusion inside the church. We need to understand that just as the church sends missionaries out into the world, so often the world sends its own missionaries into the church. And these are wolves in sheep's clothing. They are false teachers. Satan loves to masquerade as an angel of light. He loves to infiltrate the church with his servants. And that's why there is so much confusion about this in the church today. But are those who bring this kind of objection really right? That the New Testament writers know nothing about loving homosexual couples? Well, actually, I think they did. They might have even known of something like same-sex marriage. And they still clearly rejected it. In Romans chapter 1, Paul speaks of men who are burning with passion for each other. It is clearly mutual. It's consensual. And yet Paul still says it's unnatural. And indeed, he condemns them for exchanging male-female unions for same-sex unions. Consent does not justify anything. You know what I think is the biggest chink in the church's armor on this issue? And quite frankly, why we've ended up where we are culturally? I think it is hypocrisy within the church. And there's a lot of different ways we could take that. I'll talk more about this in the weeks to come in future sermons. But let me just point out one thing here. This is going to get a sermon all of its own later on. But I just want to say this now. Quite honestly, the way Christians have often treated homosexuals is shameful. It is embarrassing. The church has a reputation, sadly, for being very cruel and unkind to homosexuals. Often Christians have mistreated homosexuals verbally or otherwise. All too often we have failed to love our homosexual neighbors. We've lacked compassion. We've lacked compassion for the homosexual community. We've lacked compassion for those who struggle with same-sex desires and temptations. And quite frankly, this is why our arguments are often not heard. And to the degree the church has been complicit in mistreating homosexuals, we must repent and we must learn to love them and serve them and befriend them. We must treat everybody with dignity and with respect. And then somebody's going to say, well, how can you say all those other things you said in the sermon if we're supposed to treat them with dignity and respect? Well, the reality is loving people with kindness does not mean loving them without truth. We love them and show kindness to them, but we do so with truth and with conviction. And here's where it gets really hard. We must find creative ways to combine kindness with conviction. Real love will serve and bless those with whom we disagree, but real love will also seek to rescue those who are enslaved to destructive sin patterns. It's not loving to lie. It's not loving to call good evil and evil good. It's not loving to celebrate evil. It's not loving to institutionalize evil. What's really loving? This may be where we really have the biggest confrontation with our culture. You know, the hashtag of choice after the Supreme Court's ruling was love wins. What a great slogan. I mean, just as a slogan, it's one Christians can get on board with. That's what we believe. Love wins. But on June 26th, 
Did love really win? When our society gives encouragement and approval to a lifestyle that is far, far, far more harmful to a man's health than smoking, is that really love winning? Did love win when a form of sin that, as Romans 1 says, brings with it its own punishment and its own misery, when that kind of sin that is that carries in itself its own penalty, when that kind of sin is given legal sanction and approval. Is that really love winning? You know, when you think about civil law as the keeper of public morals, so a lot of people just think whatever's, whatever the law prohibits is wrong, whatever it allows and approves is right. Is it really loving for the church to, for, for, for the state to establish a destructive pattern of life like this? Did love win when the court communicated to children, you don't really need a mom and a dad, just generic sexless parents? Did love for children really win? And i got to ask this question too. Will love win when the polygamists get their day in court? Will love win when the pedophiles get their day No, I don't think love won on June 26th. Not agape love, not the kind of sacrificial, lasting, covenant love that God calls us to show. So how can love win? I think it's up to us, by the grace of God, to make sure love wins by demonstrating true love. By displaying true love to all around us. You don't have to approve of what someone does in order to love him. And loving him doesn't mean you approve of everything he does. I think those of us who are parents are familiar with this. You don't approve of everything your child does. But you love your child. And those two things are compatible. And you deal with those things that you don't approve of in love. That's how it works. Our country is a mission field. And good missionaries always love their mission fields. They always love those they are trying to reach. If we dropped a missionary off in the heart of Africa or Asia, and we said, go preach the gospel to these people, and he said, well, okay, but I don't love them, what would we call a missionary who doesn't love those he's called to reach? We would say, that is a bad missionary, and he's not going to be very effective. (laughs) To be a good missionary, you have to love those you're seeking to reach. You know, some have said that we Christians shouldn't be too bothered by the Supreme Court's redefinition of marriage. After all, it doesn't affect our heterosexual marriages. It doesn't really affect that much. And after all, isn't this just the world being the world? The world's always worldly, so what are you going to do? So what? It's just the way it is. Well, it is true. This decision does draw a sharper line between the church and the world. This is the world just being the world. But remember, the church's job is to disciple the world. Escape from the world or ignoring the world or simply letting the world go to hell in a handbasket. Those are never options for Christians. We are called to transform the world. That's our calling. And this work of transformation starts with love. And I've got to tell you, we have got our work cut out for us here. Basically, according to the Supreme Court, 
The only reason anyone could have for opposing same-sex marriage is hostility towards homosexuals themselves. In other words, it's bigotry. If you oppose same-sex practice and same-sex marriage, the court has basically said that is an irrational form of prejudice and bigotry. And this is why so often what we think of as love speech gets interpreted as hate speech. That's what we're up against. That's the mountain we've got to climb. Those are the walls we've got to scale if we're ever going to be effective in dealing with this issue. If love is really going to win, we've got to find ways to overcome these barriers and bring homosexuals into contact with the greatest love of all, the truly victorious love, the love of Christ. See, love means seeking another's highest good, which means really seeking their salvation. So let me put it in, in perspective for you. If the statistics are to be believed, if the statistics are right, in our city, our metropolitan area of roughly about a million people, there are between 10 and 20,000 homosexuals. They're your mission field. They're part of your mission field. They think they're on the right side of history. I don't think they are, but you know what matters a whole lot more? The fact that they're on the wrong side of eternity. And true compassion will seek to lead them kindly and patiently towards the light of Christ's love and truth. Homosexuals rejoiced in the Supreme Court verdict because it vindicated them. That's what they were really after. Public vindication. Public validation. They got the highest form of human approval possible. They got the strongest possible social affirmation. But I can assure you that this ruling is not going to finally satisfy their desire for approval and for acceptance. Deep down, they all know there's a higher court than the U.S. Supreme Court. And they know that if they're really going to be vindicated and validated, they have got to find approval in that court. Deep down in the core of their being, they know they need to be justified by God the Father. They need His smile of approval. They need His acceptance. They need Him to rule in their favor. They need his opinion to really give them the dignity they seek. But they can't get that vindication. They can't get that dignity until they repent of their sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus died on the cross. And Jesus rose again from the dead to justify both homosexual sinners and heterosexual sinners. He died so that our sin, including the worst forms of sexual sin, might be forgiven. The gospel is big enough to forgive any sin. The blood of Christ is a powerful enough detergent, cleaning agent, to scrub even the, 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 the darkest and dirtiest sinner clean. All who trust in Jesus are declared not guilty in the only court that ultimately matters. That is a ruling worth celebrating. That's a ruling worth sharing. Let's pray together.
Father, we thank you for Christ's death on the cross. We thank you that he shed his blood. We thank you for his resurrection, that you vindicated him on the third day. We thank you that he now shares his righteousness with us. We thank you that his blood covers our sin. We thank you that in him, the beloved, we are accepted and beloved by you as well. May we take this good news, the good news of this verdict, that sinners are acquitted, sinners are declared righteous in Christ. May we take this ruling, this court opinion, to the world around us that all might know the good news that is found only in Jesus Christ. Amen.